Hello and welcome to Das Nostalgia Podcast, episode 28. As usual, I'm your host, Anatoly, and today, for your listening pleasure in my virtual studio, with us is a very special guest. Sir, please introduce yourself. What's up, Anatoly? My name is Dan Polakar, and uh, I'm a musician slash retro nerd, uh, and I think that's why we get along so well. <laughs> uh, because we can talk nerd stuff all day and all night, which is, you know, that's kind of my thing. I don't know. That's what we're going to be doing here, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Well, not all day and all night, but for a limited amount of time. But before we get to the topic, uh, let me ask you if you remember the first time, uh, your first encounter within, uh, IBM PC or a clone. Yes. Now, which exact PC model it was, I can't tell you. But my uncle, who uh, lives in the state of Washington, which is where I'm from, Seattle area, uh, my uncle introduced it to me, um, specifically games. He introduced me to a game for DOS called Round 42, uh -huh. which is, I guess you'd call it a Space Invaders clone mm -hmm. of some kind. And written by a guy named Mike Pooler, who I later read some articles on the internet that were not too favorable about him. Apparently, he kind of, before Kickstarter was popular, ran some campaign. And uh, who knows if he actually took a lot of people's money or if he just tried to develop something and it didn't work out. But anyway, that, I think that was his, really his only game or his only known game. And I mean, you'd be the guy to ask that question, but I don't think he has any other games of note if they were completed and but that game was really good and my uncle gave me a certificate which i found my mother found in a book and it says that i completed uh round 42 and he gave me like a certificate he put the date on it and i remember posting it to um our uh, our our big box guys chat our big box pc game collectors chat and jim leonard asked me if it was real. I said, well, it's, it's very real. My uncle made it on his computer and <laughs> gave it to me, but it's very real. <laughs> there was no actual certificate given out because the game was freeware. So I don't think the guy made a penny off that game. Hmm. It was impressive for the time. I mean, I don't yeah, know that yeah. the, uh, I don't know that the sound was, you know, top notch or anything, but I enjoyed it. And that was, that was the first time I remember playing computer video games. I don't know if I was playing uh, NES before that, but that's the first time I remember strong PC gaming. Wow. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And pretty, pretty, specific. pretty early on, too. Yeah. Now, the question is, was I playing that game that year? I think so. Wow. And I'm, you know, the weird thing is, like, I don't really have necessarily a good memory of things not music or not video games but i have a lot of specific memories of where i played certain games and you know then kind of the pursuit of them over the years uh, you know playing the uh indiana jones and the last crusade for the first time mm -hmm. the uh the adventure game not the action game playing that for the first time i think it probably might have even been the demo and then acquiring a copy of it for myself or you know my family acquired a copy of it and it was the pack-in copy my neighbor for some reason had a stack of those envelope versions of the game yes i, I saw that 
at an uh, at an expo for the first time, like two 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 years ago. Somebody had actually Last Crusade in a in a brown in like in a brown envelope. Yeah, it's like an envelope half size kind of big box envelope thing mm -hmm. and it, it had the grail diary and i remember carrying the grail diary around with me as i moved rooms at my parents house uh when i was a kid and carrying the grail diary with me for some reason i don't know i just nice. i just did <laughs> it's a it's a great piece of like uh pack in uh whatever we call them uh like a feely yeah booklet whatever it's yeah, but awesome it's because it's, it's really with the it's movie. really well made I think that's really well made, and the game was really well made. The game, I mean, obviously, for it's a, a licensed Arts. game, uh, it, it has a it, it's it's probably better than it has any right to be. Yes, it's a LucasArts game, but like you know, they were restricted by that movie, uh, right? But yet, sure. it takes quite a lot of liberties with that story, um, and also manages to uh, pull off some interesting design choices. Um, yeah, like there was an action arcade combat sequence i mean not a lot of those and, and, you, those, and right? you could actually you didn't you didn't have to follow the story exactly you could actually change certain things you sure. could find a slightly different approach to the same situations yeah which was nice but you still had to break your dad out and you know find uh, right the funny thing was there was there was a dead end in this game there yes. was a dead man and you could die yeah yeah but there wasn't i thought lucas arts generally were known for not having dead man walking syndrome and this was a big dead man walking. Like, if you didn't get the picture, well, let's not put spoilers in there. But if, if you didn't do something in the castle before you left it, you were screwed. Even even you could advance to the very end of the game, and then you essentially had to just guess. Well, I mean, uh, Zach McCracken is is where that philosophy d first debuted in print. Um, you know, the, uh, the the famous LucasArts uh, design philosophy that was they, that their first one. It's the first one where the was that Maniac Mansion was the first one. Maniac Mansion was the first one, but uh, with Zach McCracken, the text of that uh, philosophy was included for the first time, and Zach McCracken is full of dead ends. Yeah, I like that game too. I, I'm not, I like that I'm game a lot. Not a big fan. Really? I think I think it's oh, a man. cool concept, but I'm 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 not a fan of it. <laughs> but whatever, we're not here to talk about Zach McCracken. I mean, I've recorded a whole bunch of podcasts about computer sound uh, throughout the years uh, and everything, but I, I guess I would never was as specific as we're going to get today because we are here today to talk about uh, a revered device, uh, retro vintage PC sound device called the Roland MT32, um, the, the the mythical, legendary, but also very real device that both of us own. We should point that out right before we start that we know what we're talking about. It's not just <laughs> off the Wikipedia article. We both uh, well, Anatoly knows what he's talking about, <laughs> and I'm here. <laughs> not not really, <laughs> but but so Roland MT32. Let's start from the beginning, right? So the year uh, 1987 seems to be the seminal year for sound devices for the IBM PC. Before that year, PC speaker mainly business machine only got you know only got around with with the with its built-in beeper that really wasn't made for much beeper uh, buzzer there's a bunch of names that i never it's, realized it's, I, I always referred to it as pc speaker because that's what speaker, it told me on the screen but it was designed to give you a beep on the boot up and give you different sort of beeps if there were errors and you would know it's literally just one tone i mean over the years people managed to squeeze out a little bit more out of it but it wasn't the best 
device for sound, especially considering sound on other 8-bit micros and personal computers around that time. PC was definitely on the on the very low end uh, of that. Uh, no aspect. doubt, they were at the lowest end. <laughs> they were at the lowest end, uh, unless well, there were also some micros without without any sound. So I guess yeah. Well, initially, my uh, I remember. Well, I guess no. It had, I always remember having at least a PC speaker. But uh, eventually, um, eventually, I had to buy my own. My first sound card, I had to buy. Like, I, I had to buy it. My parents wouldn't buy it. They, what was your first sound card? Well, I don't know the name of it, but I can tell you what it was. I bought it in a package from Radio Shack. Okay. I think it was 75 or 85 bucks of my own money, which is still a ton to me today. Okay. And back then it was a really a ton. Mm-hmm. And it came with a set of speakers. Okay. Unpowered, of course. They just plugged into the um the back of the sound card. The sound card was analog. I remember that because it had uh the volume dial on okay. the back, which was very annoying to reach to the back of the machine to turn up the volume and up up and down. And it also came with a joystick, which was awful, but I used it a lot okay. because I didn't have anything else. What was it called? I have no idea. I just know it was a Radio Shack bundle that I remember being in a light blue box. But was it Sound Blaster compatible? It was definitely Sound Blaster compatible. It had it was it was eight bit too, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it was sixteen bit. But I remember I was running it on a three eighty six uh, SX. I want to say it was an SX twenty twenty five Packard Bell, mm-hmm. and uh, it just didn't. It worked with everything I remember it remember playing games with, but it didn't sound particularly flattering. Well, Eventually, I, mean, I got what's the name running on it. If it's uh, the Sound Blaster compatible, so it has the had the OPL two on it as well. Well, was it a real OPL two? Who knows? I mean, it at the time, cheap. at the time, probably it probably was because they didn't really, have clones. They didn't have clones yet. Yeah. Is it because they weren't allowed to? There was a it was a license mm. thing. I also think it's because the PL2s were really cheap and you could just buy them. Gotcha. Now, quickly, 1987, right? I I I quickly looked up to see what the best quote-unquote best-selling computer of 1987 was. Mm-hmm. And the number I came up with I think is actually wrong. It said 6 million uh, Commodore 64, Amiga, uh, uh, Amiga 500s okay. were sold in 87. Well, it's it's which an, I don't it's, think is right. It's in between 87 and 92. Yeah, that's what I think it is. The yes. whole life of the Commodore Amiga 500. Well, right? the 500, yes. Yeah. So, and that, but it was introduced, the 500 was introduced in 87. Yes, I believe so. Or, or 88. The 1000. Was the 1000. Well, from what I read, it was the, it was 87. Yeah. That so was sounds about right. A couple of years 1, after. 1000 was introduced in 85. 85. And actually, the Amiga 1000 was my first experience with unbelievable computer music sound. Mm-hmm. That, that was, you know, phenomenal for the time. And interestingly enough, that computer and the, the MT32, I guess at some point developers, software developers, hardware developers saw that the PC was going to eventually overtake all the rest of the uh, other companies. I don't know how because Commodore was a giant for, for that period of time, right? Or were they starting to die by 87? I'm not uh, sure. There is, it's, it's, well, the thing is not quite yet, but at, at that time, it c- computers started picking up at, to the point where where nobody expected them to be, just by the nature of clones, 
right? It right. was it was an open design. In right. fact, even I eighty seven was the year when IBM was like, "Oh shit, open design is hurting us because we are starting to be known as overpriced, but not not quite as good because everybody's right. making clones." And they introduced their micro channel standard, which never went anywhere because the strength of PCs is in its open architecture. So nobody was gonna buy a proprietary closed architecture, uh, you know, their their PS two line. But, you mean like an Apple? Well, yeah. Oh, the, uh, well, because well, there were no clones of an Apple. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if you were an Apple, which was at the time with like what, like 2%, whatever. Uh, uh, well, no, at that point, probably a bit larger market share. But but either way, uh, it turned out that IBM, well, the IBM compatibles, not IBM itself as a company, won by by the nature of being uh, being open and expandable and and, and easily clonable. Which is why the clones flooded the market, and by '87 was it was very apparent that they were here to stay. It's uh, a very and socialist course, perspective, and, but and, I, I agree. And and they were also very, uh, um, you know, uh, you wouldn't use an Amiga or a Commodore 64 in an office to type up documents and stuff. IBM right. PC was, it was the, definitely a home machine. It, it was it was it was it was uh, the IBM PCs were the machine for work. Not great in right. graphics, terrible sound. Well, no sound, really, uh, mostly. Uh, but they could do on decent monitors, could have high resolutions for text modes and fast processors, lots of RAM, lots of storage, easy storage to maintain. So, And that's how IBM PC eventually won the platform wars. And it was super expandable. I mean, like, uh, uh, look at an Amiga or whatever. Amiga Amigas became sort of expandable, not the 500 for sure, but... Uh, yeah, the twelve hundred, yeah, for sure. But but all other machines were sort of standard configurations, more or less. Where where IBM PC, sort of uh, out of the box, you know, it was just meant to be uh, expandable. Which is also the reason, let's say, an Apple II lasted as long as it did, because it was the machine for enthusiasts, and it was it was meant to be, you know, messed around with. It had ex- like lo- tons of expansion slots and and everything. Right. So we are now. Derailing like 15 minutes past anything we wanted to talk about. <laughs> so 1987 seems to be like the watershed year for audio on PC because a lot of devices launched that year. Like the IBM PC, uh, IBM itself launches uh, the feature music card. Um, uh, oh, what's that? I don't know about that. Uh, nobody knows about it because now they're like tens of thousands of dollars and nobody bought them oh, because we're also like, okay. it's, 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 it's also its own synthesizer on a board. Um, it's hmm. very interesting, uh, p- pretty good sound, but it was because it was an IBM product from 1987, it also cost just as much Super as an C32. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe like a hundred bucks less. Uh, so nobody bought it. Well, you know, what's interesting too, about the Roland or some of these old devices, like a lot of people look on the companies that were around back then with like great, you know, um, I mean, it's sure it's nostalgia and rose-colored glasses and all these things, but they look on them with great affection, like they're dead companies. Roland is anything but a dead company. Oh yeah, Yamaha too. But I, I don't think a lot of people know that Roland is like a big synthesizer company still. Like there, there's only really there's more than three, but there's ma- three main ones. The three main ones: are Roland, Yamaha, and. Uh... Korg. Korg. The other one. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, but but either way, so like a music feature card, right? Uh, creative launches uh, the game, the Creative Music System, aka Game Blaster. Adlib uh, launches uh, Adlib Music Synthesizer. 
wow. parallel, not in the same league, but uh, also Kovacs uh, happens. So, but the Kovacs was was digital audio. Yeah, that's only, not right? unrelated. But, no synth. But it was also in the same, you know, in the same year for PC, and even a couple of others that nobody even remembers at the time. But but another one of those was Roland MT32, which admittedly had not also had nothing to do with with computers uh it wasn't originally. supposed to right it yeah. wasn't supposed to the thing that roland mt32 um is uh, uh and that name stands for for multi-timber sound module it it's it's a lower end synthesizer um yep so uh it's 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 a full synthesizer machine uh, originally produced to to sort of be like a lower cost solution for a sort of prosumer user i guess it's actually quite capable so it has like a library of 128 yep synth sound right. you could play multiple channels depending on on which instrument you pick uh, it would take up to several channels but i guess if you sort of combine the things like up to eight channels musical melodic channels at once and one rhythm channel and i think there was a hack somebody told me about a hack to be able to get another rhythm channel or something like that well who knows and we'll get to to exploits later it had all all kinds of fancy things like uh, reverb and stuff well it only had reverb and chorus right i don't think there was any other effects but again it's but you could dial in how much of that you exactly and and again it was 1987 so right and well that was a big deal because you know i I don't know how much we want to talk about the beginning of digital synthesizers but you know up until a certain point in the 80s they were all analog synthesizers which means they did all kind of crazy things like they would go out of tune you have to tune if you own a moog from back in the day Mm -hmm. you have to tune it right like still you have to tune it right and if you buy a new one they make them now you still have to tune analog synthesizers. They they don't just automatically uh, tune themselves. So like you're talking about a lot of things kind of put into a really small box in the MT32. Now, as a musician, the MT32 is really odd because what it contained was really cool. The sounds were amazing. The um, for the time and the form factor was nice and small. The problem was it was not rack mountable and rack mount is something that every studio owner, music studio owner would have and use. And even worse, it was like there was no way to program it on the unit itself. That's another thing. So they cut out the the, the cost was cut out by the fact that, you know, the unit just had a little bit of a dial that lets you adjust certain parameters right. uh, in the things, but it's just switching things like on off and adjust right. the levels and you can do it in groups or individually, but that's really it. It has like a little LCD screen and stuff. Uh, but so big synthesizer, real synthesizer, like a Roland D50, which is its direct predecessor in, in a sense, or not the predecessor so much it's as like the, uh, the, the, the father, the father. Yeah. Right? It just, uh, uh, would cost, would, I don't even know, like probably several thousand dollars, two, three thousand yeah, dollars sure. at I'm the sure time. Between two and three grand. So at, at the time on introductory price of Roland MT32 was $695, which is a lot. Yeah, which is the reason why they were so rare. But um, that's probably still about two grand. In it's it's dollars, it's right? a lot of money. Yes, yeah. it's it's still a lot of money. Like seven hundred yeah. bucks was a lot back then, and it it's sure a is now. a lot now. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, 
so what it did have it's it had something uh, it, ha- it had something called linear arithmetic synthesis uh, yep. uh which is uh partially subtractive synthesis i guess but the cool thing and again keep in mind it's 1987 how it produced the sound it had a tiny little bit of a sound that part is digital uh is it has a a little uh, it has a bank of sounds which are samples they're very short and the music guys the music guys call that a rompler now and uh, so when you generate the sound you know sound doesn't just happen it just sort of needs to appear like you press on the key or something it's not just a straight waveform so to to generate that that part of the sound that's called an attack that's a digital sample but then the rest of that sound is is generated uh, partially in analog, actually, which is why it's, we couldn't emulate it for so long because the digital mm-hmm. part is easy. Like you would get Munt with the most advanced uh, MT32 uh, emulator currently from like five yep. years ago, and it still wouldn't sound like like an MT32. These days, it's pretty close, but it's hard to nail down the rest of it. No, these days, I think it's in a lot of ways, it's it's quote unquote better. It's it's better because it doesn't have any of the flaws. You don't have any, right? You don't have any noise yes. that you would have with an actual unit. Even five years ago, in the year twenty fifteen, Munt was was far from perfect. Sure, I only recently uh, was introduced to Munt, and only to be honest, only recently was introduced to the MT thirty two. I didn't well, even we're not know. Gonna, what we're not going to say that. We're going to cut this part out. You're you're you're, you're, you're a pro. You're a pro. No, I'm just it doesn't kidding. matter. <laughs> I never used it. I had a ton of other Roland keyboards, but. I never touched that one. I have a Roland V-Synth GT that I play in my rig currently on tour. But yeah, the MT32, dude, I only know about it for a couple of, <laughs> but I knew about it from looking in my sound. Everybody knew about it because everybody wanted it, right? When they were kids. I didn't know what it was. In a, in a, in a thing, but you did see the selection, right? I knew it was an external right? unit, Yes, that's about it. Yeah. I was like, okay, what's this? What's this LAPC-1? Oh, yeah, that's... cm 32 and, and, and then you look at the price and you're like, well, I'll never have that. I don't even think I ever got that far. I was just trying to trying to make music with whatever I had. Exactly. Was, so it's know. a very interesting device, but like as as we mentioned before, you couldn't program it. The the most important part of a synthesizer is being able not to from pro- the unit. Yeah, you couldn't program it from the unit. So for that, well, not for that specific reason, but Roland also offered uh, a unit called MPU four hundred one and MPU four hundred one. Uh, which literally stood for music programming unit. Um, and they actually launched that before MT32 because uh, all those standalone Roland units were, were able to connect. It has a regular MIDI interface, right? So um, in order to program uh, the unit from a computer, you needed to get an MPU-401, which would take uh, the input from the computer and pass it along to the synthesizer. But... MPU-401 is also a standalone unit that's really not tailored to any computer. So you would need to get an appropriate card for your machine to, to get the output from the actual computer to the and MPU. Yourself, f- you're trying to tell me that none of this came with the MT-32. When not you originally. It, right? Not not in 1987. In 1988, hmm. yes, but not ah. in 1987. So those are all standalone things. And Roland actually produced a whole bunch of those cards that you could connect... Uh, uh, your computer, whatever computer you had, because they were all, remember, they were all incompatible, uh, to the MPU-401 and output your media commands too, and then MPU-401 would take those 
computer commands, convert them to MIDI, MIDI commands and send them out to a synthesizer. And those the cards uh, and the cartridges for different computers are, uh, are varied. They're for like Apple II, for C64, for IBM PC, for MSX, for one like NEC and Sharp. Uh, they had all those things that were able to connect to MPU-401. And each one of those, so the card, an MPU-401, an MT-32, those were all separate products that you had to buy separately, all with their own cost. And you you literally couldn't use, well, I guess because, as you said, originally the intent was for the MT-32 to be used by musicians. so Right, so if you had, a musician would have a way to, well, you could just plug in your synthesizer into it. I would it. plug in and I would plug directly into it, it and just play it right from right. there. Right, you would just play it from there, so you would yep. you would need an MPU-401 because... Nope. But, but serendipitously and be- even to program it i could i could run from a, from an out uh, an outboard sequencer e- like exactly if, so if you yeah. were a musician uh those things would be available to you but the musical community sort of ended up rejecting it because it just wasn't good enough well i could program i could sequence on it but i couldn't actually change and program the synthesizer sounds on it well from, yeah that's without the- without software so that's another thing uh uh, MPU for one allowed you to change the presets, right? Um, and upload your things, uh, which is what makes it really interesting. Because uh, we sort of gave up on that later on, as as a, as, a, as another MIDI standard got introduced. But so yeah, music- it was almost immediately introduced as a, as the new standard, and and that is still used today. Like you know, general MIDI is what. But by the way, we should on. we should say uh, for people who are not musicians and who are retro PC uh, PC enthusiasts, I often hear, especially in the in the gaming retro gaming community, uh, MIDI as being referred to MIDI being used as uh, as a style of music. MIDI is right. not a style of music. MIDI, in right. fact, is a protocol. Um, right, it's uh, simply data. It's 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 a protocol of transferring it makes zero data sound by to, itself to a device. Um, we still MIDI is very started in the early '80s, but the standard 82, we, 1982, I guess, uh, it was launched. And in 1992, when the the big change happened to general MIDI, and we use that standard today. Like every time you buy a pedal or oh, I lied. Sorry, 1983. Okay, uh, who, who cares? Long time ago. <laughs> um, but every time you buy one of those devices, one of the pads or or pedals or anything to to plug into other thing uh, in the musical thing, it's it's done with a MIDI interface and it uses MIDI uh, interface, right? Uh, uses that protocol to send data in. And of course, we, on 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 computers, we also have MIDI container files, those files that contain those commands to play music. But a MIDI a MIDI file, you're saying? Yeah, yes. Yeah. But uh, they just contain data. They 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 don't contain anything uh, uh, so, like any uh, any sounds by themselves. But either way, right. it's it's, right. it's, and it's, I, and it's just I hear that all the time. Like you said, somebody said, "Oh, it's MIDI music." I'm like, "Well, okay." I mean, I'm yeah. still using MIDI music to program yeah. current music. Yeah, like, MIDI music. Uh, MIDI means nothing. EDM it's, is still using MIDI. Yeah, it's it it's not. the same. Huh. Listen, it's just a thing of of passing day. It's no different than plugging a power cable in. Like it's all electric, but you know, it's not it's not what makes the music. Right. Uh, so it's the synthesizer chips and the digital audio converters that allow us to hear that 
uh, information translated into music. Right. Which is also why MIDI is, is nothing concrete. Like when you say something is MIDI, you're not really describing anything. Like you have well, you're to. You're just saying it's the interface. That yeah. You, you have to pour, you have to point to what's actually making the sound for it to make, to make sense. So the unit wasn't studio friendly. Uh, and it was also noisy because of how it was built. So in, it was a cheap, it was a cheap digital audio, digital audio converter, which is kind of, you know, sadly, that's kind of what everybody knows about their sound cards. We're really like even a sound card nowadays, it's still not a very good digital to audio converter. Like you really want, uh, an outboard mm-hmm. DAC as they're called. Uh, or an interface of some kind as opposed to a sound card. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other discussion yeah. for another time. If you want really clean sound, <laughs> the interface is the way to go. And that's, If you want a really clear, clear sound, you won't find it on your real tech built in on the motherboard mm, thing. No, generally <laughs> not. But, but either way, so, so it, it sort of didn't find the use in the field that it was primarily targeted with, but just serendipitously because it was a standalone unit, small, somewhat accessible and it also had all those peripherals that allowed it to be connected to a computer uh it found its niche in the uh pc sound mostly because sierra at the time was was picking up a whole bunch of popularity and they always were pushing for uh, like better technology and everything. So when the device launched in 87, uh, they approached Roland to be their official distributor for a bundle. Now I assume with the, uh, I don't know, I couldn't find the data actually, but we know that the original launch price of 90 of, of MT32 in 1987 was $695, right? 700 bucks. I couldn't find how much, um, uh, how much MPU 401 was at the time or how much the, uh, um, uh, a MIF IPC, which would the card for the IBM PC was, but I assume altogether it probably cost you at least fifteen hundred bucks, right? Like or right. twelve hundred bucks, there thereabouts. A lot. It was a lot of money. But yeah. Sierra offered some kind of a deal. I don't know if it was just the markup was giant or whatever, but somehow they managed to work out a deal where where they were allowed to be the official distributor of that thing in a bundle, and the bundle gave you all three. For a low price of five fifty, that's not bad. It, that's a lot better. By nineteen eighty eight, they advertised it in all of their internal magazines and, and other computer magazines, and they even recorded the tape, uh, which you can now listen to on on, on YouTube. Oh yeah, I did. I did listen. I think you sent me a recording of that. Tape. It's it's a cassette tape that just shows yep. you different audio devices, and MT thirty two of course sounds miles ahead of uh, like uh, anything else. But in nineteen eighty eight. By 1988, by uh, of course King's Quest IV, the SCI version, the 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 better version of King's Quest IV, uh, was the first game to support an MT32, uh, and all the games, basically for the rest of the 80s, uh, all Sierra games really lean heavily into uh, MT32 sound and and really use its capability. Like Sierra was very, Sierra would take big advantage of that whole programming thing where you could change the sounds. And uh, all of their all of the Sierra games are usually very like custom patch heavy. They take forever to load too if you have uh, like an old MT32, because it takes a bit to send the the changes. Well, the other cool thing is like the you know the famous Space Quest Three, right? The insert Buckazoid. Well, uh, and they also um, had custom messages for everything for for every right. game. 
So, well, explain that because people can't really see it. Like custom messages, there's an LCD screen on the unit. Yes. And that displays, you know, the sound name and this and that and the other the reverb, whatever. It, it can display if, a lot of things. if you're playing a game, if you're playing Space Quest 3, for example, the beginning of the game, it'll say insert Buckazoid, which is, you know, really cool. You, you, you had to have gotten a kick out of something like that. Let's say whenever you put that, you put that disc in, you play the game and you see the message pop up. Oh my God, what's that? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it, talking to the outboard unit. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cute. I mean, it's, it's nothing. That's a good way to describe it. It's really cool. And they use that because it sends a command first to change the thing. So you would have time to look at it, to look at it. And then it sends all the patches because sending the patches took a long time back in the day. So it would hang there for like, right. It has to send like, what's called a system exclusive message, mm-hmm. which is, uh, it's a way of sending um, an, MIDI an, information a non, exclusive to yeah, the MT30 a non, non-general yeah non-music command it would it right. would do it would adjust the parameters and because it would often games would adjust so many and on the original MT32 which is what I have uh, there has to be at least a 40 millisecond delay between each one of those right uh, that sort of Ugh. combines uh, it, it takes like sometimes good like 20 seconds to well, maybe not 20 seconds. I don't know. But it seems to sit there for a bit. So you would have at least a nice message to look at uh, while you were loading. But Sierra really took advantage of MT32. I mean, every score on 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 the like 80 Sierra SCI game is really good. Uh, some of my favorites are, I guess, well, Leisure Suit Larry theme sounds yep. great because it's, it's a very sort of like jazzy kind of thing. Uh, well, and why is that? Why is it a jazzy thing? Any any ideas? Because L.O. plays a saxophone and he's a funny That's guy. Right. He's a jazz jazz saxophonist and he was a school teacher, I think, before that. Yes, which is pretty funny. But, but uh, he's also he was also one of the, the main guys. He's also a I mean, he's dirty old man. I'm just kidding. Yeah, but he's known for that game. But he did he he worked on a lot of stuff. Well, let's that. face it, he started a lot yeah, of stuff. He after. got his start with the Disney games. So. Yeah, that's what I remember about yes. about him, which didn't have any sound, but. Uh, didn't they have any sound at all? Oh, well, if they did, it was like beeps and boops. And, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to remember. I played Donald Duck's Playground on Amiga. I remember. Oh, that that that, that had sound, but that's a bit later. I, I'm thinking of the, uh, the Mickey the, Mouse one, the, the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh, the ones that he did on his oh, own, like the, the Apple II ones. Early yeah. Stuff. Yes. So, uh, but but either way, so uh, so I what do I say? Leisure Suit Larry theme sounds great. The Quest for yep. Glory soundtrack is amazing. The first game. Yeah. Um, I love, love the uh, the Colonel's Bequest. Um, uh, that th- that that has a really cool uh, sort of 1920s. There's a lot of um, a lot of ragtime. Yes. Uh, Scott Joplin tunes in that. Uh, yes. Soundtrack. Yeah, it's like like if you unpack the resources, like three of them are like the Entertainer, like literally. <laughs> it just all kinds of cool soundtrack. Police Quest, Police Quest Two has a like a really cool uh, Space Quest Three. Space, no Quest, Space Quest Three. Yes, <laughs> I'm just so used to the ad lib version of that that I don't think about it first. But yes, yeah, so on MT32 it sounds magical, especially like not even the intro. Like when you first get in in a, in a trash compactor, or like yeah, uh, and you get out of the you, you walk around the spaceship, yeah. And of course, at the time, uh, MT32 wasn't the only device to support. Uh, uh, stereo, but uh, of those launched in 1987. But out of the two, you were m- more likely to have the other one was AdLib, which was not stereo compatible. It's mono. Uh, just have all of this like beautiful sound. 
uh, in stereo. It was was quite magical. It, it, in fact, it probably like I, I think the effect of how you know the EGA graphics and everything that has aged a bit, but that music still kind of you know it sounds pretty good even today. Well, if if you're talking about EGA and MT32, I would be uh, silly not to mention that currently something I'm working on with a Canadian developer, um, game developer named Julia Minamata. She is working on a game called The Crimson Diamond, which is actually based exactly off what we're talking about, uh, 1988 uh, EGA text parser. And I'm work- I'm helping her with the soundtrack because I know almost zero about computer programming and uh, game programming. But I'm working all off the MT32, so... All the music for that game will be done on the MT32. Problem, problems and all. <laughs> yeah. Will it, will you be able to play it on your own MT32? No, um, not at this point anyway, because it's going to be too much to implement. But all the music will be 100% MT32. So I named a couple of my favorite Sierra. Well, I guess we've named a, a few Sierra soundtracks from the 80s. What what other like 80s MT32 soundtracks you're you're fond of? I'm trying to remember some that were non-Sierra. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, every at that time, every big game started supporting it. Like right, uh, but then there, the, the interesting thing was so as games started to support it and keep the support there, uh, the SC55 and General MIDI standard were introduced. What the next year well, or two years later? A few. So the standard was introduced, I think, in in '91, and SC51 and SC55 and everything support basically started going in 92 but we have a good solid four years in between the two so one another one i I usually put like which ones i like uh like all the um uh electronic arts games had the had pretty cool mt32 soundtracks one of my favorite is the budokan the martial spirit Uh, has an amazing intro tune um i think i have a commodore version of that uh f29 retaliator Oh, I never uh, played that one. Uh, that's the only flight sim I can play. It has really, really cool uh, thing. It came from the desert. Um, I don't know uh, any even like crappy games like Capstone's Miami Vice is a crappy game, but has a uh, a nice uh, intro. Well, I have a copy of Tie Fighter in right in front of me, and I'm looking at the box. And this, check this out. I always like using the. Uh, the utility in this program to test older PCs hardware because it has sound wise it has almost every option Sound Blaster Sound Blaster Pro Sound Blaster 16 AW32 which is also compatible with AW64 or AWE whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. Pro Audio Spectrum and Roland MT32 LAPC one and General MIDI and yeah but that's a bit of a late so you know that soundtrack was made for General MIDI and they're sort of it re- was they're retroactively it was. pushing it for it for was MC thirty two so well let let's 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 talk about some other soundtracks then which which other games do you know because I actually beyond the Sierra the Sierra stuff is really what but, I what know about like early LucasArts on. come on like the Monkey Island theme uh, oh Monkey, of course. even before Mon- before we get into the real extensive use of Mon- in Monkey Island two even the original with like the five six songs that it has they right sound, they sound pretty amazing on mt32 even though i've heard that the composer never liked the device uh, i wouldn't be surprised and what i from what i understand so the early games king's quest for uh monkey island when they used the stock patches 
in the unit. And then later games, uh, guys like Ken Allen and um, and Mark Siebert and and some of the other Sierra guys, they actually went and created their own patches for yes, all of these games. A lot of those games are, are like 99, 9, 89 and up are pretty heavy. Most of the LucasArts ones, I think, rely on stock. Just use stock mostly. I, I don't remember seeing, but I could be and wrong. If you, if you listen, so there's a really cool program actually that um, – a librarian software. Again, I have to shout out Brandon Bloom because he hooked me up with the librarian software. But to program the MT32 right now, I have to use, or I am using, a DOSBox uh, instance of the of Windows 3.1 and a program called LA Synth Editor because there was there's no uh, at least there's no modern solutions that I'm aware of that are compatible with the MT32 to send back and forth patches and program back and forth patches. The popular one at the time when it came out, as I understand it, uh, was, was one for the Atari ST <laughs> and trying to emulate the Atari ST and send real MIDI data to a real MT32 is, I mean, the DOS box way is already very clunky and it's just, just, just the way that's just the way it's got to get done in order to program and uh, use different patches on the MT32. But once you do that, you get some pretty cool sounds. Like they were able to program with very limited um, ROM options because they couldn't sample any sounds or anything into it. They were able to program some amazing stuff. So even some of the bird noises that yeah, I was talking and about the, the Sierra games always had the yeah. uh, the doors opening and closing. I think Mark Siebert did a lot of that stuff, but I could be wrong because I yeah, see his name all those by Sierra games by are, patches. A very uh, patch heavy, uh, but like uh, like for example, what else? Loom Loom has a classical Tchaikovsky Loom. soundtrack by uh, redone by uh, George Sanger. Uh, Does it ch- is it Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake? It's Swan Lake. Yes, it's it's all yeah. all of it is 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 from the Swan Lake, and they're nice uh, transitions to uh, nice uh, sort of adapted for MT32. Well, and soundtrack. George Sanger's a guy you got to mention because he really, I, I I don't know how responsible he is for the development of General MIDI, but from what I understand, he's directly responsible for how uh, FM synthesis, as uh, in terms of um, like ad lib and things like that. He kind of helped to standardize those things. Well, so he said, s- okay, the, mu- sort of. the music, the levels, like the audio levels should be, uh, the same throughout these patches so that, or, or, or whatever. There was, there was a lot of interesting stuff that, that he was responsible for. Yeah. And, what I, and one of the things he was responsible for is, uh, um, uh, like the, uh, helping out on the origin stuff, right? Uh, yeah. But, well, but, that would, that'd be where everybody would know him from Wing Commander. But and, Wing Commander, along with, uh, Monkey Island 2, uh, two different from two different companies. They both had sort of adaptive music. Uh, yes, on, on the uh, in the pre-general MIDI era. Was Monkey Island two the first one to kind of do it? I don't know. Was but it they the, was it the iMuse system that started it, or was it before that? Uh, I honestly have no idea. When did first Wing Commander come out? Nineteen ninety on MS DOS. Wow. So Wing Commander was first for sure. First, yeah. To use uh, adaptive music. Well, for 
in that form. I'm sure there are examples of earlier. Every time you look up, it's just like every time you can yeah, think of something, always. there's always like at least five things that did before that nobody knows. Well, about. you know what the interesting thing is? They had, <clears throat> you know, people could do things before, but sometimes the ones you know about because they simply because they just had bigger budgets. And obviously it helps to have a great game when Commander series being kind of a seminal series in, oh, geez, uh, space combat in in i mean it must have been mind-blowing in 1990 to play wing commander and say oh my god the ship's coming right at me you know and hearing all the sounds and hearing the music Mm -hmm. so i mean these these are kind of things that we kind of take for granted now we just kind of fuss with dos box to get them to work or we buy them on gog or something and they just work but i don't think that was such an easy thing back in the day especially when you were adding MIDI and MP401 hardware and God, I can only imagine the amount of time it took. I mean, it takes me a long time to work with retro PC stuff. Now I can only imagine the time it took back then. Yeah. It's, it's probably, it was probably very time consuming. What else? Uh, hold on. What am I thinking of? Oh yeah. The, um, uh, Ultima six has a pretty good, very famous soundtrack that sounds really good on MT32. Okay. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to the terrible DOS version of Double Dragon 3, which is an awful, awful game, awful but port. it has an amazing, uh, title tune, um, that is not, that is just unique to that version of the game. It's not from the arcade or it's not from any other ports where I forget who did the, uh, MT32 uh, version, but I know the the ad lib conversion was done by the Vibrants. Um, but the the MT thirty two version of that song sounds amazing, and and generally like all big budget games that you can think of supported it, uh, uh, all the way through to the introduction of the uh, general MIDI standard in uh, ninety one ninety two. Uh, I mean, games still supported it after the fact, but they started targeting. Uh, the the more popular general MIDI standard that took away, you know, it standardized the instruments amongst other things. Like when you get a thing like M- an MT32 or any other MIDI device for a time, things were kind of just whatever. It has 128 instruments. Well, right. So you but can they send, weren't really you can arranged. send general MIDI information to an MT32 and it'll play back, but it it's not. It's going to sound weird, right? Because number one, the MT32 for some bizarre reason defaults. As the first channel to channel oh, that's, two. That's right. It's one, yeah. one channel up. It's really bizarre. And there's a way to reset it. You can send a program change to, to make the MT32 go to channel one. But even if you do that, the sounds aren't the same. Like, let's say uh, sound number one is piano. Right. Right. On, on both general MIDI and the MT32. Uh, but as you go on in the sounds, they don't line up at all. Mm-hmm. So you could be having like a synth sound, which is supposed to be a cello. And of course, as you know, general MIDI got better and better and the, uh, the sounds got better and better. It didn't matter that they didn't have to change the standard. They right. could just change the sound. They can change the sound. And that's why general MIDI is still around and the, the sort of, uh, exclusive MIDI devices with their own stuff are, aren't around anymore because yeah, we no. have a standard to like uh, no matter which card you use from like 92 up if you had 
a general MIDI card. It didn't matter if you had like a, uh, I don't know, a sound blaster with a with a with a wave blaster on them, right? Or or an O32, or uh, who cares even like Gravis ultrasound right. and stuff. They all you always knew that the one was piano and like 16 was right. Something it was drum else. Sounds. Was there, but, channel, sorry, channel 10 was drum sounds. Right, but it was sounds. all across all those platforms. Uh, the so that was. Uh, the gain and what has to be given up is that ability to customize your own sound. So that went away. Um, but general media, of course, the standard also offered a lot more, uh, sounds to make up for it. So there's all kinds of like stuff like the telephone ringing and all that stuff that's like, right. At the the table. Sound effects or like, whatever. They're all at the end of, of the things to make up for all those weird stuff. Um, and they usually sound really bad, but uh, some people d- d- have d- used d- them, used them as signatures in a way. D- you know? d- depends, uh, depends on the cartoon. You know, actually what one of my favorite is, I, I was recently playing cause I, you know, I have an MT32 and I was playing police quest three, uh, okay. which is past that era. It's right on the cusp of the, Oh no, it's 91. So, uh, it's, it's right before the general MIDI. So it's still an MT32 and it has a really cool patch when you waiting, inside the first floor it has and it's because it's in stereo you're in the office and it has those things where in the distance in both channels the phones are ringing and people oh are people are picking them up and talking to them and it sounds sort of like um like peanuts the, the adults yeah, and peanuts it sounds like but it's just quiet enough and just to the sides where it actually creates on the media device uh, that sort of immersion thing where it, it uses uh, it not for music but for atmospheric um effects and uh it's uh it's it's really really cool T- tell me more about soundtrack something i i've been listing a whole bunch of them hmm. well okay i'll pull one out that i totally forgot about and unacceptably so because it's my favorite game of all time i think at least my favorite pc rpg for sure and that's might and magic mm-hmm. uh, four. Oh, yes. four is my favorite a lot of people would name six or uh, the Heroes of Might and Magic series is phenomenal, but that's a little bit later. But Might and Magic 4, to me, was kind of the my favorite, uh, I think, graphical setting. The color scheme I really loved, Everywhere You Traveled. And that game supported MT30 music, MT32 music. And I love the soundtrack. And that was 1992. And it initially was a disc-based game. And then eventually they did a CD-ROM version. But I don't believe the CD-ROM had any kind of... Um, CD music? Um, music. Yeah, I don't think it was included in the music. I remember, of course, playing it mostly on my whatever FM clones uh, Radio Shack sound card that I had, which one day I'll probably dig up on eBay or something. But um, yeah, it, it was, it was, that's, if you haven't played that game, first of all, that's an amazing game. Uh, I know a lot of people point to six or whatever, but that for me, four, and, and then the combination of four and five, which was unbelievable. You could combine two games. And become one huge game was I don't even think anything like that's I mean sure, I'm sure some like has been done like that but to me it was just awesome it was almost like a DLC in a way I guess or a, an expansion pack right uh, Might and Magic four and five but there yeah, were improvements and then you could combine them together if you had both and one big game and and, and it also like enable teleports from one side to the other that's right you could actually well I remember the there's a, so as you leave the first town. Uh, in Might and Magic 4, there's a there's a pyramid there. And it says, if you don't have the other game installed, which I never did, and I never even realized you could do it, 
the moons have not aligned or something along those lines and you can't go to the dark side. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Do I have to beat something in the game? And then I bought the next game and they're like, oh yeah, you can combine. I was like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, so that, that game was, that game, I love the soundtrack. I love the opening theme, especially. I mean, I can sing all these and hear them in my head, you know, as we speak about it. And uh, that, listen, New World Computing is probably one of my favorite uh, PC game companies. Um, not one that gets a lot of love like uh, Sierra or Origin. You know, everybody wants to collect, or LucasArts. Everybody wants to collect Origin, Sierra, LucasArts. I like to collect New World Computing. Uh, you know, up to the point where they were bought by 3DO. Um, they did make some good games. And then whenever whenever 3DO completely took over, it was, was at Activision. I'm not even too sure. At some point, they, they just kind of weren't really the games that people initially, you know, kind of remembered playing. It's somewhere in the Might and Magic 9, I think it was 9, 9, where it kind of really transitioned to games people didn't want to have too much to do with or heroes of might and magic three was, uh, you know, um, still probably one of the best games of all time. And then might and magic four is kind of a, a bit of a letdown for a lot of people, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Well, what else? So we already mentioned, um, monkey Allen two as, as being a yep. very special <clears throat> example of, uh, first of all, it's just a generally a great soundtrack overall. The, the game has wonderful music like throughout. I think a lot of people refer to monkey Island as their favorite of all time too. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, monkey Island just generally has really good music yep. throughout the series, but monkey Island two is like the one where it's like four or five composers, like all yeah. of the company's composers, like Michael land, Clint Bajaki, and of course, Peter McConnell, uh at least those three maybe even more uh and they all collaborated on this wonderful soundtrack and it's adaptive as well right uh, which and is that the first the first time you see it is when you walk down into the into the bar it's well no it's the right right in the fir- it? it's the first it's right in the first location because they're all connected because it's oh, all this giant it's it's it's, it's, it's uh, yeah as soon as you walk over the bridge even if you because it has a little theme that plays atmospheric sound before you even step onto the bridge, before it wow. gets into the Largo theme. Yeah. Um, no, depending on when you step onto it, it sort of flo- switches. Not very gradual. It's pretty fast, but you can still f- see where it, it finishes the bit of the last. It jumps to That's the last bit and then amazing. finishes. But that first area is also the biggest demo of that. And also... It's it's like they they also said it was so complicated they they never did it again uh, yeah. after after that but that that whole introductory area is such an amazing demo for well for, what do you mean they never did it again they what never goals? did it again well first of all after that it, shortly after that they went with the digital audio you know it was right like soon and the only other uh, interactive uh, like the iMuse were was used in like a Star Wars you know like a yeah, X- Tie Fighter, X Wing Tie Fighter, and Dark Forces. That's pretty much um, the other three uses of the of that same tech. Uh. And after that, it's all digital. I mean, like full throttle. Yeah. Full throttle is just digital music. Yeah, the CD ROM. By the time you reach the CD ROM era and Maniac but Mansion Two, I specifically want to. They have the Tentacle has that, but it's not used. To to the it just used to, to like it just used to transition into the next song basically while right. in in like Monkey Island and stuff like it has one of those where it's like 
you can go to like six different places and they all have their own transitional points and stuff and it's really really yeah. cool and a central central theme that connects them all um, well it must have been expensive to develop and again let's let's go back to that thing that i mentioned earlier this is the 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 upside of having this amazing stuff happen is that you you know you get it the downside is when people developers specifically realize the cost they can't they just can't afford to do it you know it's just it just becomes too expensive now of course adaptive music is the absolute norm in every single game you pretty much every single game you play you know it's very rare that you don't hear adaptive music uh, and adaptive just means that it's not linear music it doesn't start at one point and end at one point it starts you know you have various things like uh when you're detected, there's kind of a, a new uh, urgency to the music. And then when you're uh, in combat, there's another style of music that, you know, further um, intensifies the, the music that's happening or, you know, various things like that. But pretty much that's the norm in certainly every AAA game and, and, and uh, you know, many smaller games as well, indie games as well. Yeah. Uh, but I want to give a shout out to a very specific uh, example, which maybe not to everybody's liking, but the uh, Tempest 2000, the uh, for the Atari Jaguar originally had like a techno uh, tracker soundtrack made mm -hmm. made on an Amiga, I believe. Okay. Um, and every other port of that game had the CD music, had the head of music sort of not just converted, but rearranged slightly uh, because, you know, the original tracker format wasn't particularly... Uh, clean so they just took those right. songs and redid them again for uh, for the future ports but the DAS port of that is very unique because A it came out in 96 uh, and it, it has the version of that soundtrack uh, rearranged for uh, Adlib weirdly uh, not even OPL3 like a f straight OPL2 um, oh. renditions of that techno soundtrack which is really weird and it also has an MT32 option where it, it's just custom patches wow uh, it's just all just giant thing where like if you load it up it just the screen constantly says loading 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 because it actually sends it sort of <laughs> treats it as a tracker it just constantly sends in CSX messages wow uh, see that's what that's what something that you could really achieve some amazing stuff with and it sounds An like unit. like techno music. MIDI is not particularly fit for, uh, for like sort of like uh, short bursts, uh, you know, for what dense techno music is, especially not in the nineties. Uh, so uh, because the uh, the the sounds uh, that that sort of those MIDI synthesizers did, they have that specific sort of feel to them, right? They feel uh, you'd think electronic music would feel. Uh, good electronic but all of those things are like you know it's it's piano it's drums it's 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 not exactly what like uh uh what we know like in the 90s dance music uh but uh but uh, tempest 2000 actually kind of succeeds in, in sort of like approximating those techno tunes that's on, one I got to try. I on on the MIDI now. synthesizer. Somebody actually recently, I, I posted the AdLib version a long time ago, but I couldn't get, that's one of those things that didn't emulate too well in Munt. Uh, but, but finally somebody, uh, somebody got tired of waiting. And, and I think last year they, or maybe the year before they put up the MT32 version uh, on, on YouTube. And uh, so, I mean, it's really silly because it's just 90s dance, but uh, uh, it, it's cool to, 
uh, that's not a soundtrack. And that's unlike any other soundtrack you will hear from an MT32. It's that's it's it's, it's, it's a very it sure. very unique thing. But another thing we should talk about is some of the we we've talked about some of the drawbacks with space and cost and everything. But we also have to mention the compatibility uh, between the things because uh, there are. Uh, two revisions of the sort of original MT32, right? Two of them just have different uh, chips, but they're the same chip. They're just d different form. Um, that's in the 80s, and that's the original one that we talked about, uh, uh, the ones that had 40 millisecond SysX delays and everything. But that's those are the games that, of the 80s. That's what they expect. But uh, later on, the whole uh, the different model of MT32 was made shortly after, uh, which was slightly less noisy, but also had a different CPU. Like, yeah, that, this did. thing is essentially yeah. a computer. And that one didn't need a delay, but also some of the Sierra games, not only, uh, not just Sierra games, but some of the games that only use custom patches, but also sort of exploit some of the bugs in the original model uh, for their own purposes. And none of those, those bugs were fixed in the later version so the music that uh, that those 80s devices target uh doesn't work on uh doesn't work completely properly on the newer model and unreal so you need to buy two mt32s and, to be a proper retro gamer and the games that are made like in the 90s that that expect a newer model like the sierra games if you just plug them in directly like all those sysx messages like the the screen and everything they all come up with checksum error because they don't wait mm -hmm. for 40 milliseconds uh, and stuff. You really need to get a, a, a different driver or a program to slow down the SysX export and stuff. So even between those two, in just a short cup few years, those models have 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 differences, um, and different games expect different things. As always with everything on PC, nothing is ever perfect, uh, and everything just goes to hell with with different configurations. Well, that's the the blessing and the curse of being an open platform yes, right so absolutely. that's why there's always hardware conflicts and this and that and people are l looking for compatibility and that's why you know i think that's why apple eventually gained a lot of popularity because it's just a plug in and go now are they more expensive for lesser hardware always i mean they always for as long as i can remember they are you pay more for lesser hardware but you know it's going to be compatible because that's the only Right, uh, it's a standard vision. configuration. Yep. Yeah, there's only a handful of configurations and they're all using the same stuff. So Another thing that happened is um, Sierra apparently approached Roland, uh, even in the 80s, into trying to convince them to also add, uh, a, 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 create a different device with an actual uh, DAC and a buffer for digital sounds. And they refused. Uh, Wild. But at the same time, I guess the MT32 was selling rather well because Roland created a separate line of computer music devices called the CM uh, to, to follow up the MT32. And like CM32L sort of became the next um, incarnation of, of that series of devices. It was essentially an MT32 compatible with with the additional uh, 32 sound effects. But, more, but uh, it was, you could... You know, like the games that supported the 32L directly would play those effects, but you could also just play uh, MT32 
games on it would it would completely match up uh, all the instruments and everything uh and you could still upload the patches and everything but you still needed all those other devices and eventually Ron released the LAPCI uh, which was an ISA card with everything combined. You didn't need another card. You didn't need an MPU for one anymore. You could just buy one thing with everything on it, and it was essentially a CM32L and everything, That's amazing. and all combined for the low price of uh, four hundred and twenty-five dollars. Um, and I bet you now in today's today's money, that's probably I don't know if you'd find one for cheaper than that. Yeah, now, again, it was towards the end. It was uh, introduced in 89, and as we know, just in a couple of years later, General Media took over, and those cards kind of became obsolete. Yeah, I don't even see those cards now, sadly, for sale, because that would be totally cool to have everything on just one ISA card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like a big, long card, too, because they had yep. to combine three devices into three yep. pretty big devices into one. Cram all these chips onto various, Yeah, it's like the size you know. of like an early CGA card. It's a full, full case long card. Um, so make That's sure crazy. you have the room left. But uh, yeah. um, so I'd say let's discuss some of its mythical status because because of its cost and because of the quality of the sound for the time and everything... MT32, even to this day, gets brought up as, like, the best thing ever for retro sound uh, of that era, even by people who never had or heard one. It just it just acquired <laughs> that reputation. And uh, yep. as both of us own one, and both of us are familiar with that device, and uh, I would like to say the device, as good as it was and as, as cool as it is to own one, is um, is a bit overrated. Yeah, well, there's a lot of drawbacks to it. Um, the upside is the quality of sound that it gave you from that period, uh, 1987 to what, 1991, 92, whenever the SC, yeah, the on, sound on that platform is is unmatched essentially. Right. Yeah, because you, you, I mean, well, you had other things, but when did the Gravis ultrasound come out? And, oh, and I know for a fact it's like ninety-two and up, ninety-three. Right, so it's much later, and it was that was not a very widely supported card no, like no. the MT thirty-two was supported. Um, and I think even f- far fewer people had the Gravis ultrasound mm-hmm. card. I, I, I certainly don't know about it. or, or even the um, the later cards that had the ability to put on the daughter board that kind of improved the sound. But I think that stuff for the most part was later as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, the AWE 32, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what year that was, 94, much later. And then, you know, th- so the interesting thing is too, there's a lot of emulation uh, options on de- different devices. Like they offer, they say they offer. Uh, I, I have MT one. I, I have a sound blaster value, but all it, so it's, I mean, it's, works for some games because all it does is remaps it, it takes the mt32 the yeah, input and it just remaps it to whatever the general midi matching instruments Equivalent. are but the problem is if you have any custom programming yeah, it toast. doesn't work so you it's cool you're it's toast. it's all right if you play monkey island or, or loom the first but if you three pl- four games but <laughs> if you uh if you play any you know, like the extensive cr games they will sound way off yeah, Way and, and I have I have a an actual I have a really odd unit that uh, initially I don't even remember why I bought it. I think I just bought it because it looked cool and it was going to make general MIDI sounds. But it offers two MT32 compatibility modes. M- modes, excuse me, 
It's called the Yamaha CBX T3. I had to stand up to look at it because I didn't even remember the model of it. And it sounds decent for general MIDI. Like I could see doing a soundtrack on it. The only problem is I think as a consumer of any kind of modern retro uh, product, like a game or whatever, or soundtrack, I would actually want to hear something that I knew. So I would want to hear an MT32, for example, or I'd want to hear a, a sound canvas or maybe one of the Yamaha units from later, the MU series, you know, because those to me have nostalgia. Like, you know, is somebody going to compose uh, music for AW32, AW64? That would be kind of cool. But they, they start to sound more similar, I think, as time went on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the difference being the, the digital the audio and conversion and then maybe the effects that were supported and you know, the the general MIDI standard kind of like like we said, it standardized the sounds, but it it you couldn't you couldn't program it like very distinctively like you could with an MT thirty two because it, they weren't really they were synthesizers still, but they weren't really offering you the ability to change right. they weren't as the samples on the fly. You and, couldn't remap the right. sounds. And and it was that's why it was the end of custom MIDI in PC basically. It was just became general midi which at that point became a fight for who has the better quality instruments like who can fit more memory on their card to to have a bank that sounds better and that was the the fight for a while until you know it just went all digital music so yeah but but really the cool thing about i think the coolest pieces as a composer for the mt32 is it's like really a synth yes it, it's it it's a real thing because yeah. it was never meant as like a, a gaming thing or whatever it's just meant no. it, it was meant to be uh a, like a, a prosumer thing and that's its main advantage it's it's also its main disadvantage because you had to jump for all those hoops to to get it hooked up and and, and well and it's and, a huge disadvantage because a lot of keyboards back in the day they were compatible with their like lesser module versions so if you had the keyboard and the module you could basically just double the amount of sound uh, polyphony you could get or or patch layering you could do some amazing stuff with but with an mt32 if you owned a d50 let's say and an mt32 you weren't able to access uh extra capabilities without sending system exclusive messages and also let's be honest if you had a d50 why would you need to (laughs) to no you weren't you wouldn't and (laughs) and it's funny if the here's you're gonna really laugh do you know what what year was the was the uh roland d50 introduced i'm gonna say 83 87 so it's the same year really yep 1987 so here's the price difference Right, so six ninety five for the MT thirty two, eighteen ninety five in the US for the Roland D fifty on launch. On launch, that sounds awfully cheap. Uh, I mean, it's grand. a lot of money, but I expected over two grand. Yeah, I, I think I think I expected over that too. But and it was also a much better uh, well, synth, and than... also that's a synth that's a, and we, much I, more powerful. Synth. We also I I always like to mention because like once once I got the MT32 I was like wow the output is really really noisy you wouldn't listen to it in the studio but having said that I I've li- recently been listening to a lot of 80s uh, records and stuff. And a lot of them are noisy as hell on yes. the instruments. Like yes. some of them are so noisy. The D50 is noisy. And, and the reason I know about so much about the D50 is because I tour with an artist named Sean Paul, right? Jamaican dancehall artist. 
there's two keyboard players in the band. One is me. Another is a guy named Nigel Staff. Nigel Staff, if you know anything about dancehall music, he's kind of the the living legend musician of dancehall. Now, he's not like an artist singer or whatever like that, but he backed essentially every dancehall artist that ever has come out of Jamaica at one point. Started way back with Shaba Ranks and... Um, Beanie Man and all these guys, and now Sean Paul, of course. But he still, to this day, plays two Roland D50s on stage. So each of us play four, well, I play five keyboards on stage, and he plays four. He plays two D50s and two Korg M1s, and the M1 is, I think, was supposed to be uh, basically a competitor to the D50 a couple mm-hmm. of years later. And that has, you know, plenty of, uh, plenty of signature sounds in it. But the D50, he still uses... And to this day, he's still got great patches that all the dancehall artists still love because they've sounded as good as they sounded on stage since he started using them. And I hear it all the time. I, there's some some patch signature patches on the D50 that I just love. Oh yeah. And there's interestingly enough on the MT32, I have this librarian software, and I have uh, I, I guess it's the Sierra library because it's thousands of sounds uh, that I can load in anything from from the sierra library and i don't know exactly how it was compiled i think, I somebody think it's ripped it. quest studios ripped like, quest studios right yeah, yeah like they ripped all of the patches and there's a ton of them you can just download it oh, one it's big a couple of thousand yes like if you didn't have any other synth option you could make soundtrack after soundtrack after soundtrack with just that unit in the librarian uh, would you want to now given what's possible with you know i could do crazy music on my iphone probably easier than i can program an mt32 no but but the it's just amazing to, to get all those sounds you know it's like it's just unbelievable and then we should we should really speak about munt which is the emulator of the mt32 but before we go munt last one last word on the d50 the reason i brought it up in the first place my engineers and my uh my front of house engineer and um uh, our stage, our tour manager will complain about those D50s till the day Nigel changes, which will be never. They will complain and complain. Oh, they're noisy, man. They're always given. And, and literally there's always problems with them because we, we don't always carry our own equipment. Mm-hmm. And even when we do carry our own equipment, because these keyboards are so old, they need repair. Mm-hmm. Like when you play on stage, and especially with the group that we work with, we're doing a lot of outdoor shows. Mm-hmm. So we're exposed to elements, all kinds of elements that are causing all wreaking all kinds of havoc on these units that are what, 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And we're expecting them to work like it's still 1987 and get still get parts for these things to repair them. And so it becomes, it becomes a, it becomes an issue, but even those things at $1,895 were still very noisy. Do I, I'm not sure what DAC they had if the same DAC chip was in um, the MT32. I doubt it. I think the MT32 was a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the D50, it, the, the D50 is really the, the daddy, the big daddy of the MT32. So if you really want to hear kind of the full potential of it, the D50 is what you got to listen to. Um, huge in reggae, huge in, uh, Huge in everything. You listen to any yeah. '80s, uh, any '80s movie synthesizer soundtrack, or any '80s like dance song. There's a, yeah. there's, there's a, there's a D50 on everything. 
on everything. Oh God, just for for anybody who's really interested, go on YouTube, type in uh, D50 stock sound demo, and just like there will be plenty of videos of people just going through all the default presets and 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 playing a few notes, and you'll recognize so many of them through from so many uh, so many songs of of your youth. So yeah, it's worth. It's worth it's worth checking out. It, yeah, it, I love I love it. I uh, love the patches. But uh, let's let's talk about Munt. So Munt uh, is pretty much the only uh, emulator of four MT thirty two. That's 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 worth it. Uh, you can. Are there? Other, I wasn't even aware that there were other there projects. Were, there were others. I mean, Munt itself grew out of another project, uh, which by now is obsolete. But uh, there were others. But I think at this point, Munt is the only one that's worth it because everybody. That's the one that everybody backed. So MT thirty two. Uh, w- was hard to emulate because um, uh, because of how it synthesizes the sounds, right? So it wasn't particularly accurate. Uh, right, in the how inaccuracy it functions. was was part of the sound. Uh, yes, so the D fifty had that same issue, yeah. right? So, but now it's very very close, and you don't get any of the noise. However, I would like to point out that now that I own an MT thirty two, part of the charm. Is how noisy it is, how imperfect it is, how you have to shut it on and off every time you want to use it, just because you want to reset <laughs> it. Because God forbid one of the settings stayed and your next game is completely messed hanging up. notes and things yes, like that. Yes, everything. Yeah. So if you don't want to spend any money, uh, month is your number one go to. Now that I've mentioned the money, I would also like to say that if you are spending money and you're buying an MT32 today. Um, you can save yourself some trouble because you don't need any of that additional stuff. Because it's a MIDI device, you, you can plug plug it into your modern machine with like a USB to MIDI adapter. And I have one of those. I have a Roland one. Um, yes, but here they're very problematic. So if you don't buy a Roland yeah, one, yeah, the ones that are knockoff, not a lot of guarantees. Allegedly, will might not work well. I have a Roland one, so I, I have one. the M Audio MIDI Sport Uno, I think, and I've used that for years on all kinds of keyboards and computers, and they work fine. On the MT100, I was using an MT100 before I got the MT32, and it was giving me all sorts of issues. Yeah, I have, so. a, U, I have a UM1 as well, and, and it works just fine, and you can just point uh, Windows or whatever your OS is to, to that uh, MIDI output, and you can play the game on DustBox, and DustBox actually handles, even if you have a, like you have a old MT32, it will handle the SysX delay for you as well. Uh, the Scum VM will do that as well. You don't have to worry about any of that, so you will just need to buy the unit they're pretty pricey um depending if you want to you can wait for one pop up on ebay for cheap and try to snipe it or if you you wanted to shell out don't shell out too much money because let's let's not drive all the prices up but well what did we see the last unit go for with the uh oh i didn't oh yeah don't mp401 that was like almost 500 bucks right wow yeah but because it had all the bundles in it don't do that unbelievable because you don't need the uh, so but if you want to use it on the on the retro machine, here's the thing. Um, so uh, because they were made for MPU for one interfaces, uh, the a lot of cards have external MIDI outputs through the game port, right? All the Sound Blaster compatible yep. ones. They do not output an intelligent in intelligent mode, which is what MT32 needs for the SysX commands. Um, 
that can now so before it was a problem but now that's not a problem anymore there's this program called soft mpu that you just run and it turns your as long as you have uh, a, a midi out that's uh, you know that works in dos or if you sound blaster compatible card it will make it work it will rearrange it to work in an intelligent mode and you don't need any other devices so you, whatever sound card you have in uh, uh it will it will work with that um there are also clone cards uh, clone mpu 401 cards uh that you can buy that uh so they're just midi intelligent mode and and the sound blaster dumb mode this <laughs> it's not officially known as a dumb mode but it's like an intelligent mode and a dumb mode so they an work inside in, joke they, they they both work in that mode and you don't have to buy an mpu for one unit they have a midi out on them uh, i actually have one of those cards um uh now um and uh so it will work and does it work well it works really, really well. It works the same as it's an ISA card. It, it, it even works on my uh, uh, IBM PS2 Model 30 that has an 8086 in it. Wow. Uh, and I can play MIDI music just fine uh, through that. What games do you get to run up? Uh, well, I mean, it runs like Civilization, Prince of Persia. Uh, wow, okay. Somewhat okay. So uh, to the point so where you can the Sierra pl- games and play. Stuff. It, will, oh, it, will, it will run Sierra games, although that machine doesn't have EGA support. So on Ooh. the EGA games, it will only work on ones that, that detect that the PS2 and switch to the 16-color VGA mode instead, which a lot yeah, of them do, true. but some of them don't. Or you just need an updated driver for them and it will work. Uh, but also there's all kinds of things that like uh, I use I have this thing from Microprose where just a collection of MT32 music you just press a different key and it plays a different tune or a sound effect and that will work and stuff so those cards work um, they're kind of pricey but they're cool and uh, if you have uh, now they don't delay the SysX messages for the old for the older MT32 but again you can run soft MPU with a parameter and it will do it for you um, oh, that's cool. So that's uh, that's another way of doing it. Saves you a lot of headaches. Uh, there's also a, a hardware version of Soft MPU, which is called Hard MPU, uh, which is essentially Clever. which is not a direct clone at, of an MPU 401, but a different implementation of the same thing, and that will delay SysX for you in hardware. Um, and there are also in uh clones of uh um whatever the mpc uh interface as well you can because it's really hard to find an, uh, an old one uh uh online uh so you can if you have an mpu for one somehow and uh, or like an, an a later version of the mpu interface and an mc32 but don't have the card for the pc you can buy a clone card for about 50 bucks and that will put them all together and of course there's an option of buying everything like we said the recent complete package that we saw went for almost 500 bucks just last week yeah i should have bought it when i got uh, yeah <laughs> you know if you knew if in my country uh we have a saying you know if you knew where to fall um you know and so on uh so um uh but uh whatever so though so it's it can be pricey but uh, and it's a pain to use, as we've mentioned multiple times over. Yeah. Uh, but it's cool to have an actual retro device. Uh, the ones that are in good shape sound what they sounded like. It's a nice. Well, let's point out the important distinction that you'll need if you do buy an MT32. There's 
there's it really boils down to there's more than two revisions, but the the two revision differences that you'll notice is uh, the old version does not have the headphone jack. The new right. version has the headphone jack. The headphone jack is not located on the front and is not an eighth of an inch. It's on the back. It's a quarter inch. Mm-hmm. So you're still going to need either a headphone adapter. Oh, that's right uh, because it has the it has the un 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 what are they called un unbalanced un, unbalanced audio out unbalanced quarter inch outputs. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need some kind of mixer device or interface with inputs, which most of the retro guys are not going to have. Yeah, that's any true. Th- those things. These these are things I had for years. Not thinking about retro mu- gaming is just thinking about the no, music. I, I have I have general. a mixer just for retro gaming specifically. Right, right, and uh, well, a lot of people are buying them. You know, now. I mean, when did you buy that? You didn't buy that that recently, did you? Well, it, five like, years ago, six it, years a few ago, years. Like when like I started, basically when I started capturing soundtracks from so not, maybe from, 10, not from emulation. No, 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 ago. no, no. Just a few years ago. Okay. So the other ideal thing, though, is if you did have, it's got the line out for your speakers, one. And if you were using, say, like a MIDI stack, like you have the the uh, Sound Canvas SE55 or the SE55 Mark II or the SE88 or the 8850, whatever, any of those Sound Canvases and the MT32, and for some stupid reason you have a CM32L as well, or any other device, a Yamaha MU series or even the Korg uh, there's some really cool Korg units that probably aren't so retro gaming popular. They're more popular for musicians, but they would also work. They're all general MIDI. You can plug, depending on how many inputs your mixer has, you can plug all of them in at the same time and kind of turn them on and turn them off as you need them. And I think, I think, um, uh, lazy game reviews, Clint has a, a, a pretty weird, cool video on, you know, his ridiculous MIDI stack. One thing that let's, let's, briefly mention this one thing that's very confusing to people is that the midi in and the midi out when you're connecting to your computer they have to be opposite so you're sending the midi in of your computer to the midi out of a roland mt32 you're sending the midi in uh, of the roland mt32 to your computer midi out which is really bizarre but it it makes sense when you think about it in, in terms of signal well yeah one uh, one, one port accepts it one outputs it so it right but i remember you know it's, it's, oh you just match this up and then eventually the interfaces the, especially the usb ones got smart and it said two midi in <laughs> two midi out yeah they're so like just match yeah. them up they're yeah. like you're dumb just match it up. But that's what uh, you have to worry about if you get the real unit. Uh, but like right. I said, month month in a sense is even better, kind of. And it got well, and it got accurate better. enough to to actually accurately emulate uh, the things. And even if you can enable a little thing, it'll pop up a little because you know they have no LCD screen, uh, you know. But it will pop up a little little window. It does. That yeah. will, that it has will, a fake LCD. That screen. will tell you what's on the LCD screen, so you'll see that in sort of Bakazoid uh, thing or something. Well, I, I think I've said just about everything I wanted to say. Do Do you have anything about an MT32 that you wanted to add that we missed? Did we miss? We probably missed a whole bunch. Yeah, but, we'll probably uh, remember like tomorrow. Like, like, how, <laughs> why didn't we talk about ten other things? No, but if I can, I'll just quickly plug the crimson diamond again because i think it's 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 let's just talk about the game it's modeled very similar to uh you'll be reminded of a colonel's bequest uh the laura bow game the first laura bow game and 
but it's not that game. It's definitely its own game. And I've been getting some inside information about the upcoming chapters that are in the game and they're ridiculous. I, I couldn't believe it when I heard what is going to happen. You know, if you play the demo, you may have one impression of how the game's going to go, but man, it's going to unfold and it's a much larger game than the demo, uh, which is available for free on Steam. You could go to the crimsondiamond.com um, and you can also just uh, look it up on Steam. The Crimson Diamond is uh, the demo is available for free. It has, I believe my soundtrack stuff is in there already. The main theme is in there and there's a dinner theme um, uh, in the dinner scene. But a lot of that's going to change. They're not quite final versions of the music yet. They're they're probably pretty close. The average listener might not be able to tell when the final release is out versus these earlier demos of the game. But um, they're pretty close to what the final versions are going to be. There may be some added sections that weren't in there. We may change the timing of things to uh, match up better with the game sequencing and then also try as much as we can to do adaptive slash iMuse style music with the game. So I think it's going to be really cool. I think any MT32 and retro PC music enthusiast is going to love it. And then also the people who actually just loved playing Sierra games, even if they had to use the PC speaker. So you won't have to use the PC speaker for this one. There won't be any of that uh, noise and it'll be a lot simpler. Just cup, you know, a couple of clicks on steam and you're good to go. Um, it is set for release this year. We don't have an exact release date, but uh, we're hoping before well before the end of 2020, you'll see a full version finished of the game. And that would be very exciting. Nice. Sounds excellent. Nice. All righty, sir. Well, um, if people are looking for you or your stuff online, where can they check you out? Oh, I'm I'm really well hidden at the moment. Um, you can Google my name, Dan Policar. I'm on Instagram, Dan Policar. That's my probably the most active social media um, that I'm on at the moment. But that is going to change. I'm working on my own podcast right now, which will be all music related, but uh, probably not so much emphasis on retro gaming. And um that I can't quite announce yet because it's still a little bit of a top secret, but it's coming soon. It's going to be a music-based podcast. Um, and yeah, you could just, you can also, uh, if you're on any any country that you're in that has a Sean Paul concert, uh, it's a very good chance you'll see me there on the stage if you go to the concert. Um, and that could be practically anywhere on the planet. At this point, we've been to 60 countries since I've started working with him sadly not uh i haven't been to russia sadly but hopefully at some point soon we will go there uh and then i should also announce <clears throat> that i've been working on another video game soundtrack uh called empire of sin and that is nothing to do with mt32 music at all that is if you know anything about that game it is a strategy turn-based strategy game slash sim city sim building uh type game set in 1920s prohibition era chicago and the coolest part about that game is the fact that it's going to have similarities to some of my favorite games like xcom uh the jagged alliance series and is made by none other than romero games which includes Brenda Romero, uh, 
and John Romero. You may know those people. They are uh, probably John is probably about as legendary figure as you can get in the PC gaming world, and Brenda is right up there, very close. Yeah. I mean, I I I I cannot thank the two of them enough for especially Brenda for giving me a ton of direction and mentorship in just the game industry in general. And although it, like I said, although it has nothing to do with the MT32, uh, you will hear some of my music in that game. And that is supposed to be coming out in the spring of this year. Oh, wow. Already. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that game because I'm a big Jagged Alliance 2 fan. Oh, really? And there and, you go. And uh, I, I like that style of the game, the flexibility, and 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 Brenda had a lot to do with with that game being as as uh, as good as it was. She is no joke, and she's a wonderful person, and their family is wonderful, and I'm just I'm like you know over the moon about that. That actually really gave me my start in game music, and it, it was Brenda who made that happen you know and nice it's helpful for her to be the ceo of the game company so she can make <laughs> she can make these decisions but um yeah i mean she they're fantastic people and this game i think is going to be top notch and uh it'll be very different from anything that's going to be released i think in the whole the whole year i don't i don't think too many games are focusing on prohibition era chicago anyway so the soundtrack is going to be very different from what you'd hear it's not going to sound like, you know, uh, the, the average Skyrim soundtrack or, right. you know, it's going to have a very period correct soundtrack and it's going to be really, really awesome. Awesome. That sounds great. And, uh, uh, people can find me if they don't know <laughs> while they listen to this podcast, I can be found, uh, on Twitter at Dust Nostalgic on YouTube, on whatever you can use the search engine of your choice to look for Das Nostalgia. Um, you can find me and get in touch with me if you have a topic that you think you can discuss for about an hour or two, a Das Gaming-related topic, let me know. And you too can be a guest on Das Nostalgia podcast. Well, sir, thank you very much. Oh, uh, where where can they find both of us at the same time? Both of us at the same time uh, in the same room probably can be found at Long Island uh, Retro Gaming Expo. Um is that what you were hinting at? I don't know. I was hinting at that, yes. Okay. I don't want them coming over to my house or anything. <laughs> yeah, stay away from my place, too. Keep your hands away from my MT32. Um, but, uh, but, yes. Please, it, please come to the expo. We'll please. be there. We'll be talking. We'll be displaying a ton of stuff, yes. as much as we can get our hands on and, and we can get help for. And uh, that's, a, that's a project we're also... Uh, actively looking for knowledgeable volunteers to yes. to help with and, that and you can tell us to our face what we've gotten wrong in this podcast <laughs> instead it's of plenty i remember last i remember last year somebody really going at me and saying oh that's false i said okay yeah. so instead okay, of le boss. leaving <laughs> leaving all those uh, youtube comments come and and uh and tell it to our face while you come get and, yeah come and give us real life YouTube yes comments. and we'll uh we'll we'll beat the shit out of you and then you can play uh, uh <laughs> then you can play uh you know something like you know there's playable space war uh, at the yeah. place i mean it doesn't really get much cooler than that but it does so we're building then, we're building a replica of um the original pong as well all this crazy stuff. There's crazy there's, there's stuff. Some you, amazing. Not stuff. only you get to see with your eyes, but you also get to touch and play and talk 
about with other people. It's all very interactable. There's plenty of stuff to do uh, for both days. Uh, uh, come bring your families. It's a it's a family friendly event. Uh, there's yep. there's enough to do for the kids. And uh, yes, I, I, I had so a good exhausting it. time last year. Me too. <laughs> I know you were exhausted. <laughs> yes, I nearly ran you into the ground. Literally, I, I am generally exhausted. It's okay. <laughs> But yes, so, uh, uh, and, uh, this is it. Thank you, sir, for, for joining me on this podcast. I had a uh, lot of my fun. My pleasure, man. Thank you for asking me. I hope people had fun listening and, uh, I hope uh, we meet again on another episode of Das Nostalgia podcast. Goodbye.